Welcome everyone to Season 2, Episode 8 of the On Path Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Samir Yahech, a Senior Manager of Sales Engineering and Operations at Clarion. In our conversation, we chat about his life and career path, growing up in central Switzerland, how he landed his first job in consulting at Accenture, how he got into sales engineering, his time at Salesforce, and landing his current role at hyper-growth startup Clary with a cold message to the CEO. I first got to know Samir by hearing him as a guest on another show, and I've been following him on LinkedIn ever since. He's a personal inspiration to me, so it was a real pleasure to hear his story. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, thank you for listening. Hi, Samir. Thank you so much for joining for the On Path podcast. Yeah. Hi, Vijay. Good to meet you. Pleasure to be here. So uh, we're going to talk a lot about your life path and your career today. But before we get in, get into the details, I just want to kind of step back and talk about your childhood. You know, what are some of the defining memories from, from your time growing up? Yeah, wow. What a, what a deep question. I mean, normally these podcasts start sort of once I graduated with my first job. Going back to my childhood, I mean, I grew up in in Switzerland. So for those who kind of look up my LinkedIn, they will see kind of I'm you know started kind of studying in Switzerland. So that's because I am from Switzerland, from a small town called Lucerne, in the German speaking part. Actually, in a small small tiny village of three thousand people near Lucerne. Yeah, my childhood. I mean, it's interesting, right? My parents are both from Bosnia. They came to Switzerland just kind of before the war in the Balkans. So for those who've been studying some history, kind of you know the Balkan quite a quite a conflict-rich uh, area in that sense. And they, they moved to Switzerland and I was born in this you know, tiny village. And once they realized how fantastic the environment is in Switzerland and how we've made friends, my brother and I, they, they chose to stay in Switzerland, not go back to Bosnia, which was a you know, pretty great decision um, in hindsight, because obviously there's lots of amazing opportunities in a country like Switzerland compared to Bosnia. So I grew up in Switzerland. And I think that sort of shaped uh, me as well, having that kind of two homes uh, or two homelands in a way you know one in switzerland where i grew up where i have all my friends but then there's you know the language i speak at home with my parents you know the whole heritage from from bosnia and i think the memories are you know always that kind of balance between the two you know being swiss but also not being really swiss and being bosnian but also not really being bosnian and i think always being with you know friends either on, on either side of those two countries and and contrasting those and, you know, not feeling at home, like fully somewhere, but still feeling very close to, to one uh, at different times. And I think that's shaped a lot of the moments in childhood, you know, being a teenager and has widened the perspective, kind of looking back on it as it widened a lot of my perspective in life. Yeah. Nice. And so we're going to jump around a little bit in this conversation, yeah, yeah, and, sure. but on the same topic, you know, you mentioned Switzerland is a place with a lot of opportunities, but at some point you picked up and you moved to London and that that's where you are now. So how, how did that come about? Yeah. I mean, this is such a great question as well. I think I was in this tiny village, again, 3000 people, beautiful countryside, did my high school there and apprenticeship and all that kind of stuff. And then I thought, well, I want to do something, you know, more uh, exciting. I want to go somewhere as tons of people. And you know, the U S at that time was like very far away from home, but it's like London, like I, I speak some English. I learned tons of English at school. I got pretty good at English. And I thought, well, let's go abroad to, to the UK, to London, big city, very different from where I'm from. The, the name of the village I'm from is Eschel Smut for the ones who might be listening from Switzerland. That's why London was on the radar. 
I really want to do something, you know, in a very different environment, big city, use my language skills, improve my language skills. And that's how I first went to London. This was over 10 years ago for an internship for about, you know, nine months in 2010, I think. Yeah. Great. And so continuing on this kind of theme of your early years, I know you were a social care worker for, for three years. Tell us a bit more about that experience. Yeah. So, so essentially when I, so I, I did high school in Switzerland, as I mentioned, and apprenticeship, then I went to London because I want to go abroad, couldn't keep myself from exploring the world a little bit. Then I came back and what you have to do in Switzerland. So for those again from Switzerland might know, you know, you have compulsory military service or compulsory service for the government. You can opt out of that and do what they call a civil service because I'm not much of a military uh, person. I thought, well, let's do the civil service. That sounds pretty um, exciting. And I did civil service for Caritas, which was this social work organization, especially working with refugees that would come in to Switzerland from all over uh, the world uh, at that time, especially from the Northern Africa after the um, Arab Spring. So I applied to work at Caritas because I thought that was really interesting, different cultures, different people. Again, I got that multicultural bug in, in London and loved working with people from all, all over the world. And I did that for three or four months, full-time as civil service person, before I started studying. And at the end of that time, they said, hey, Samir, you, you seem to enjoy this. You seem to have fun working with different people from backgrounds. And do you want to come work during your studies here? You can work you know, a day a week. You can work on the weekends. It's really flexible. And I said, yeah, I mean, that's amazing. That's like perfect job during studies. It, it paid really okay as well. I was pretty happy about that. They said, look, if there's nothing much happening on the weekend, you don't need to engage actively necessarily. So you can actually you know, do some study work if you want to. And that's what I did. So I did, you know, basically throughout my whole studies, either part-time during the semester or again, full-time in the semester breaks, I did um, social work at for Caritas, working with refugees from all over the world. And it was a really fantastic experience as well. Wow. wow. And, you know, I, re I really get the sense that you're someone who's always has many things going on in parallel, right? Even now. <laughs> well, you have a very good... Um sense i think of people that was very good analysis in just the, the few minutes we know each other yeah for sure cool so let's talk about um the start of your career you landed a job at accenture how, how did that unfold yeah so i'll tell you a bit about the backstory again we were talking about it when as we prepare like stuff that's not on your linkedin necessarily so so basically what's on my linkedin is i did an exchange in boston during my studies the last year which is fun came back in february and then just to do my sort of undergraduate thesis so that was kind of the final bit that was left so i had a few weeks in between studying a new semester starting that work and i i just started looking at jobs earlier than probably most people just because it was you know got the spare time it's kind of okay let's apply for jobs better better get that sorted um and applied to a few jobs and one of them was accenture actually and I had the job before we even finished or before we started the, the new semester, before the holidays had finished. And it was pure luck, pure coincidence. I mean, I remember them from careers fairs. I applied to you know, similar companies in the space, you know, the Deloitte's or IBM's. They just made a really good impression at some of these career fairs that they would run in Switzerland during that time. And I really wanted to apply my, my interest in how technology can improve businesses, how it can transform businesses. I was always a, a fan of tech. And always loved kind of seeing how tech unfolds, but I was never uh, you know, the hardcore coding geek in that sense, right? Um, as much as I want to be, um, I think my mental capacity is not really in the coding sphere. And I always just like to kind of be with people, do projects, get stuff done. As you've um, rightly identified, I always have lots of stuff going on. So I kind of enjoy that as well quite a bit. So 
that's how it ended Accenture. You, you know, purely coincidence. It wasn't like big on my list or anything like it. It was just like one of the companies to apply to. You know, mm-hmm. go for the assessment center, all of that stuff you do for, for these big companies. Had great fun at the assessment day, to be honest. You know, you present case studies and, you know, you, you do your do your uh, pitching and team working. And I just enjoy that environment because, you know, it's exactly what I wanted to do later on as well. And they made me an offer on, on that day at the end of the day. I mean, they would get these 15 or so candidates in. They ask yeah. you in one by one. I think I was second to last. So you can imagine, you know, as a 20-something in Zurich in a fancy office, um, in, in, in Christ one, like in zone one in Zurich. And you're like, oh, what are all these guys doing? They probably know everything much better than I do. Yeah. At the end of the day, like, Samir, you did well. Here's the job offer. I think about it. And I was like, yeah, amazing. I'll think about it. And obviously, I accepted and had a great time at Accenture. Nice. Well, let's dig a, a little bit into that experience working in consulting. How did like seeing all those different customers and working in that kind of role shape things for you? It's so many things that I've learned, I think, during that time at Accenture. I think it gave me a really good grounding in being a professional, right? I mean, it just sounds a bit fluffy, but I think being a professional in terms of you are there, you're being paid to a client to deliver work, right? You deliver work and they expect a certain mannerism, a certain professionalism in that. So I think it's that fundamental grounding in um being a professional in the workplace. I think it's really a fast start because, you know, you go to Accenture, you do maybe a boot camp of sorts. I think I did something as well in Frankfurt for six weeks or so. And there's like off to the races to your first account. And I work for a big uh, life sciences firm in Basel. You know, it's probably one out of two. So most people can guess. And that was, that was fantastic. But they would know, you know, this person costs, I don't know, several hundred francs a day, maybe even more. And Mm -hmm. they expect something uh, at the end of the day after each minute of work you deliver. And I think it gave me a really good grounding in the business world. And also it gave me just a bit of confidence as well over time as we kind of fast forward with with the few years I've been there. And, you know, the the stuff that I'm doing actually delivers value. There's a happy client on the other side. So what I'm doing, what I've learned in my studies and how how I've improved over the first few months and years really delivers value to customers, right? So I got a bit of, uh, more confidence as well because I knew I did it for the big people and kind of Accenture for a big customer and big uh, life sciences, and that gave me a lot of confidence as well later on in my career. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a very very strong way to start because you get all that exposure and yeah, know. absolutely, uh, it was good fun as well. Good fun as well, traveling around and seeing different locations. I wouldn't want to miss that, and I I sometimes feel for the people who started their careers in the last two years from their bedrooms. Uh, because I did really enjoy that time uh, early on in my career, traveling around, seeing customers and clients in different locations. So yeah, good grounding for sure. And maybe on the flip side, right? Because it's not all glamorous. Maybe what was your least favorite aspect of consulting? You're right. It's not all glamorous. But um, as I think back, what was, I mean, even the, the, the hard times or the not so pretty times, you learn from them, right? I think, you know, I think there's a quote, I think it's from Ray Dalio, and I don't want to quote too many, but it's like, you know, pain plus reflection equals growth uh, or something along those lines. And, you know, you, you do hard stuff, you know, you work sometimes long hours or you travel on a weekend when you don't want to travel necessarily, but you learn a lot. You learn a lot, especially you kind of think back, oh my God, this is what we've done, how we delivered a project, or this is how we've you know made a customer happy or client happy at the end. And you learn from that, right? So I think, one of the aspects, I mean, talking specifically is like, you know, traveling, you know, not everybody likes to travel all the time. It's probably something suited for people starting out their careers. It gets later 
uh, a bit harder in your career. Today, I wouldn't want to travel um, too much because I've got a family. So I think traveling four or five days a week is exciting early on in the career, maybe less so later on. I think that's definitely one of the things that kind of drains on you over time. The rest I did really enjoy, but again, maybe not for, you wouldn't want to do it forever, like the constant pressure of projects and the constant pressure of being, you know, chargeable on projects, delivering hours by hours for clients. That sometimes is also something that might be a bit of a downside of the job. Yeah, got it. Okay, let's talk about uh, Union for Digital. Yeah. Maybe by, to start, could you explain to us what it is? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's funny. Um, so Union for Digital, so people who will look at my profile think, what, what's this Union for Digital? It's really, you know, for the bucket, for all the things I do outside whatever my, you know, regular job is at the time. So that's stuff outside Accenture or stuff outside Salesforce or stuff outside um, Clary right now. I always kind of tinkered with, you know, creating websites or, you know, portals for people. That's kind of my slightly geeky side coming out. So I created, you know, websites for people when I was 16 for like the local tennis club or, you know, a, a band as they were trying to, you know, get up concerts. And then I thought, well, I need a brand for this. It can't just be Samir creating websites. That sounds a bit boring. So I said, look, let's just call it Union 4 uh, Digital. And Union 4 is really because when I was in Zurich, when I worked for Accenture, I lived in Union Street 4, so Unionstrasse 4. Uh, which was coincidentally the the exact building that Einstein used to live in when he was in Zurich. That's a fun fact. Um, and I thought, well, let's call Union 4 Digital. Again, being very creative, uh, as you can tell. That's basically been the bucket ever since. I do lots of stuff as Union 4 Digital, anything I do outside it. So today I do, for instance, lecturing at the UCL, where I studied for my master's. And I just, you know, say there's part of UCL, it's part of Union 4 Digital. When I lecture at UCL, I put in the, that bucket. Sometimes I advise startups or companies and, you know, when I build them or invoice them anything, I, I would you know, put it on the Union 4 logo. I try to get a blog up and running on that as well. I blog every now and then on it. Again, something I've maybe not done as much as I wanted. It's just my bucket for everything. And probably I should revamp it at some point now that you mentioned it. So probably I should rename it to something more meaningful and use it a bit better and update it a bit more. Nice. But I, I like that idea of having that bucket to capture all your professional activities outside of your direct role. And you're you're a hiring manager now, right? Like we were talking about yeah. hiring a little bit before we before we started recording. And I'm curious, how do you look at it when you see, you know, on resumes and when you talk to candidates, when they have things on the side, like what's your take on it? What's your take on like side hustles in general? I think it's fantastic. Everybody should have some sort of you know hobby or side hustle, whatever the case might be. You know, it doesn't have to be necessarily money making all the time, but I think definitely it's important to have a balance with your passions you have in, in your life. And I find always very positive. I always like to pick on that when I see a resume or a CV. I say, oh, what is it that you're doing here, you know, volunteering at a charity? And why that charity? Why is it important to you? Um, or you know, whatever the case is, what are your side hustles? How did you come up with that? And you know, people have a talent for something or well, that's always lovely kind of to get to know people a bit better. I think it's very positive. I think that that's the overall take on it. I think it's very positive. And the team we have, funny enough, now at Clary, it's funny just by coincidence, not that we talk to everybody um, during the interview process about this, but many do have side hustles. Many do have things on mm. the side that they run. Either they you know, support a charity quite heavily or they had a side business and something completely unrelated from tech. And that's just amazing to see. And it's just always good for a conversation and just easier to get to know people a bit better that way and, and their passions outside work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great way to kind of explore things that are sometimes tangentially related to work, but you can't necessarily 
do directly in your role and yeah, yeah. exactly 100 big fan of side hustles always keen to learn about you know what people do i mean like this podcast i guess is a side hustle as well isn't it uh for yeah, you a little yeah. Bit. yeah it is for me yeah cool so now let's talk about your main hustle yeah so let's talk about uh, how you got into into pre-sales and solution engineering so for the people again we talked about accenture so i did that for a while i really got into technology and i learned about salesforce because i was part of the salesforce practice delivering salesforce the salesforce solution to clients and after that i went to do a master's in london because i just wanted to go back to london again after this initial internship i'd done a few years prior and i was thinking well should i stay in london and I was thinking through that with my wife together as well kind of do we want to stay here or do we want to go back to switzerland and she's swiss as well and we really landed on that let's stay in london and i was like well i know salesforce technology based on what i've done at accenture and there's a big beautiful tower in central london with amazing offices where salesforce is let's apply at salesforce and i applied to salesforce uh, through a friend he referred me that i knew from accenture and um, I got into that uh, pre-sales role that I didn't even know about at the time because what I was telling my friend was, look, I, I enjoy this kind of client work. I enjoy bringing the latest innovation to them. I don't enjoy necessarily too much the building and testing and deploying all the stressful part, you know, the goal lives of new solutions uh, in consulting. And he said, oh, you should really look at this pre-sales uh, solutions engineering, sales engineering thing. And I did, and I absolutely loved what it sounded like and applied and got in. So that's how sort of how I got into pre-sales, how I got into Salesforce. And I've enjoyed that career path ever since. It's now expanding a bit in terms of the, the remit that I'm doing, kind of leading the team and building the startup. But I really love bringing technology together with the value that it can deliver to customers. That's just amazing, I think. That's sort of a, a dream job, customer-facing. You work with innovations day in, day out, and and... And you don't have as much pressure as the sales reps you work with. So I think that's also kind of a, a nice um, aspect of the job. And that's how I got into pre-sales and why I still do it. Nice. Yeah. And it, uh, tell us a little bit about your time at Salesforce. That's a very unique company in terms of its culture. And I'd just love to hear about how your, was it two and a half years? Yeah, yeah uh, more than two years. Yeah. Um, yeah, Salesforce was great, right? So again, this is, you know, always got to think about the context. You know, on the LinkedIn profile, it might look always very polished because I keep it clean. Um, but yeah, this is, again, me from a 3,000-people village who's worked in Zurich, which is a big city, working for global clients, um, and then doing master's in London because I really loved it and love the city, and it's great for you know food, culture, theater, everything. And then staying in London and working in, in the big city of London in this fancy tower overseeing the city from you know floor 30 at Salesforce. And that was just, for me, just mind-boggling, right? If I tell my parents or, or friends uh, or you know, bring them around to Salesforce Tower, which you could do at the, at the time, like, what, what is this? Like, you get snacks, you get, like, free coffee. And, and this was just out of a different world for me. Um, but then what kind of beyond that surf superficial stuff, what was amazing about Salesforce was, you know, what the company overall has achieved, like, you know, the founder, Mark Benioff and, and the vision he had for the business, you know, 20 years in still growing like absolutely crazy and, and the values that the company is trying to embed in everything they do, you know, trust being the number one value, but also customer success and innovation, all these sorts of things are deeply embedded in the culture. And, it was sort of the first taste for me of a proper American California tech company with all the all the things that come with it, like you know, the true belief that you know companies can improve the state of the world, 
that you know jobs should be really kind of part of your overall life and how you identify with yourself at work kind of the, the bring your whole self to work uh, mantra as well so really really enjoyed that and i think um they really take good care of the people as well especially in pre-sales we had you know fantastic people leading leading our teams and i had good managers as well and a lot of that like the the, the importance of culture and that's been one of the key things I've learned at, at Salesforce during my time there, the importance of culture in making sure the teams are happy, the teams perform, the people are happy and people perform at their jobs. And that, that was absolutely one thing that stood out from all the other things. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the, the good experience you had with managers there. What was it about the way they managed that, that made it effective and that made it work for you? Yeah. I think one thing was the good managers. I mean, they would they would have this can-do attitude, right? The the glass-half-full attitude, right? And I think Salesforce at the time and still is growing a lot and changing a lot and evolving a lot. And I really had a few good managers who who were, what's the idea? How can I help? And, mm-hmm. and you, know, you know, some more than others, but I think I really enjoyed that rather than just being part of a machine that you know, serves a function and delivers a piece of work and then kind of moves on to the next piece of work. It was really... You know, what do you want? How can I help you? I trust you're kind of motivated intrinsically to do things, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be at this company. You want to do stuff. You have energy to do stuff. And and some managers are like, cool, I don't want to stand in your way. Actually, what do I need to unblock you? What do I need to give you to go even faster? Yeah, I mean, there's a few managers that kind of look back and still think, you know, they were absolutely amazing and super important in shaping my thinking about work and the career trajectory as well. Yeah. And let me ask you now that, you know, all that you experienced kind of in person in the Salesforce tower, as you mentioned, right? And now you're managing a team and I'm guessing probably for the last year and a half, we've been doing it kind of all like this over over video yeah. call. So how has it changed things? It's changed drastically. I think the good thing is it's changed for everybody, right? That the pandemic has had that effect that, you know, it's changed for everybody. So it's not anymore that you know some teams go into offices and some don't so i think that's leveled the playing field and i think the good thing is about so where i'm now at clary where i've, where I've built a team is you know we've gone remote first from the start so we've had all a lot of the best practices already on how to communicate a lot and in a good way on you know on slack for instance or through email or through zoom calls or whatever the preferred medium is and how to build a culture in a remote fashion so i think we almost had a bit of a head start uh, compared to others and i think it boils down to a few good principles that you would have in person as well you know regularly catch up with your team check in how they're doing like you're within an office like hey how how, how was your day you know 6 p.m send us uh, you know slack to your team like hey how was your day in the morning good morning everybody on slack not just when you need something but also just how you would do it in the office and i think trying to mimic some of that natural work uh, is super important and being able to keep a pulse on the business right and that's something you just have to translate in your mind as well as you move mm-hmm. to remote work and and as, as you kind of work through the pandemic and if you've done that that's great i know of companies where they've not done that so much where they kind of still wait for next time they see each other or next time this and that happens and then you know you lose a few weeks and you lose a bit the pulse on the business and on how your team is doing and i think doing it proactively and almost a bit, you know, too much, probably over communicating. It really helps keep the team together, keep communication flowing, and also help you create feedback loops to improve things if things are going um, not in the right direction necessarily. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I find with, with everyone being remote, you just need to be more explicit, right, than you would be in person because there's so much that's communicated that otherwise doesn't get communicated. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah, like, exactly. Especially yeah. on chat, right? Exactly, on chat. And, you know, chat can also mean many things. That's why I like to jump on, you know, calls with people as well very quickly. You don't need a meeting in a diary for in two days' time. Let's jump on a, you know, Zoom or Slack call right now and, and discuss it quickly. And that's, I think, just that that there is a bit of a, bit of a kind of threshold where people think, oh, well, should it be a meeting? Should it be an email? Well, maybe it's a two-minute call. Guess what? Good old-fashioned calls, they still exist. So you can do these as well to reduce any miscommunication risks. Yeah. And how do you decide between email and Slack? 99% of the things are, are Slack. I mean, all the internal stuff is really Slack. And if there's a customer um, or prospect involved, you know, it usually goes through email, right? So if it's, you know, following up with a, with a prospect, CCing uh, somebody on the team, that's internal. But if it's purely internal, if we're talking about the candidate we're trying to hire or a demo we're preparing for a, for a big pitch, you know, that's all internal. So that would happen on Slack. Yeah. Cool. All right. So let's talk about Clary. So from everything I hear, Clary is really a rocket ship and you've been with them a couple of years. So help places like when you joined, where was Clary as an organization? A real rocket ship. Absolutely. And I was just reflecting on that over the, over the weekend. We got uh, yesterday off because it was President's Day in the US and they gave the global teams off as well. So I had a three day weekend and was literally talking about that with my wife and we were walking um, around here like, oh, what a crazy journey so far. What a crazy journey so far. And so basically, you know, Claro started around eight, nine years ago. Typical Silicon Valley, high growth startup, seasoned entrepreneurs who started it, backed by top VCs like Sequoia. And that's been sort of the, the, the starting point, right? And they've grown like crazy, signed big customers, and or we've grown crazy and signed you know, big customers like Zoom or Okta, Workday. And then around three years ago, there was one person that reached out to the CEO in the US and said, hey, I want to build Clary EMEA. And the CEO was a bit reluctant at first, but then the person was really pushy and trying to really get EMEA started because the person was so excited about what Clary could do. And they had the first person here. Um, his name is Vern. And Vern came over from LinkedIn and he started Clary EMEA completely on his own without any supporting cast or infrastructure, nothing at all. For the first year, he was just on his own and he signed a few customers and he built some good pipeline for the future now whilst Vern was on his complete own here in Europe and the company was at that point around 250 people I heard the CEO Andy on a podcast and I thought well that's an interesting company I'm at Salesforce I'm pretty happy you know, it's good managers decent product but I had this itch of you know I want to do something more from the ground up because Salesforce was around 30,000 people at the time and I thought well this Andy guy at this Clary company that sounds pretty interesting. I just follow him on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and just kind of keep on top of the company. And I keep, keep seeing them again in, in the feed and they seem to be growing. And I'm like, oh, this could be really exciting, kind of, you know, building something from the ground up. So I reach out cold on LinkedIn to Andy Byrne, the CEO of Clary, CEO of a 300 people company in Silicon Valley who's you know, built and sold multiple companies before. I did not expect a thing. Why would you reach out to this guy from Switzerland, from a tiny village now working at Salesforce in London? But guess what? He did reach out right the next day. He said, Samir, thank you for reaching out. Vern is building. EMEA, reach out to him. Best Andy. I was like, oh my goodness. How amazing is that? The CEO of a company in Silicon Valley reached out to me as out of this world. 
And I reached out to Vern and he was talking about what he was doing, just trying to build the foundation of the company. And, you know, give or take a few months later on, you know, I talked to maybe three or four people. Clary raised some more money. Vern was doing a good job. And they said, you want to be the very first sales engineer and help us build the foundation in EMEA. So that's when I joined two years ago. That was kind of the journey into Clary at 300 people. Today, we are 30 in EMEA. So we've hired a whole ton in the last two years, salespeople, marketing people. We raised two more rounds since I've joined. Series um, kind of series D was when I joined, and then Series E and F in the last sort of twelve months. And yes, it's been a rocket ship. So you can imagine the growth from you know Vern and me and just two or three at the start to thirty now, and we're still adding many more as we go along. Um, so that's been a crazy journey, kind of in a nutshell. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And just to kind of like help understand what that really means, going from like a two-person team to a 30-person team. Like, what did you do two years ago that worked perfectly well when it was just the both of you that now you have formalized more or just do very differently? Yeah, it's it's everything. You have to rethink everything constantly, right? So it was Vern, me, uh, you know, uh, sales reps and uh, SDR, so kind of typical go-to-market team, the nucleus of the, of the company. And we would spend an hour or two every day on a Zoom call all together. So this was like literally when the pandemic kicked in. And we would talk about what everybody was doing, different moves into accounts, different approaches to things. You just had the time to talk through it, find mutual connections, to find a way into an account, all these sorts of things. We were so closely aligned. We knew what everybody had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and whatever was doing for sports or you know hobbies. And it was, it was great and it was super important in the virtual environment, plus being the very first team breaking ground for this new market. Super important. And then as we scaled, we realized, well, you know, you can't talk, again, everybody with everybody for an hour or two every day. It just, it just doesn't scale. Classic, right, in startups, you know, things that you do at the beginning don't scale. And now over time, you see things like, you know, onboarding. We've completely automated it, um, you know, made, it, made recordings for things so people can watch it. And, you know, you introduce processes for that. We introduce processes for pretty much everything that is manual over time. And that's helped us just scale better. But there's still stuff we are doing manually. We're, we're thinking right now, and so in the last six or so months, we've hired, I think, of those 30 people, we hired almost half of them in the last six months. So again, what worked six months ago in the summer doesn't work today. So right now, today, we're like on a call and thinking, we need to change this around as well. This, is, this doesn't work anymore. Let's think about it this week, and we'll change it again, how we'll do it um, next week. And that's a constant journey here. And the company globally does that as well on a level from, you know, when you go from 250 to, I think, around almost 600 employees right now. So there's, again, a whole other um, scale um, in the U.S. of how they have to change and rethink things constantly. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the joy of being here as well, kind of rethinking that all the time. Yeah, and I'm curious how, you know, we're pretty early in the year. How did your sales kickoff work this year? We were in this moment of transition and I see some companies did it in person, some did it virtual. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I wish we'd done it in person. I wish we'd done it. I think we could have done it in person. And we wanted to do it in person. But then Omicron came. And you remember how everybody was, like, scared. And, and you know, rightly so. Because we didn't know what it meant at the time. And so we canceled the in-person kickoff and went fully virtual, which was a tremendous task from kind of the enablement team, kind of pivoting so, like, all virtual so, so quickly. And so we did it. We done it virtually, and it was great. I think they, I think like many companies, and our our team really learned a lot from you know, last year's experience doing it virtually, doing uh, much more uh, interactive sessions this time around. You know, shorter and snappier. 
So I actually really enjoyed the kickoff um, virtually, even though uh, we get, didn't get to meet the people in person, but pretty good job kind of pivoting from our team internally to virtual. Cool. Nice. Let's talk about LinkedIn a bit. I mean, clearly it was pivotal in landing your role at Clary. And yeah, it was. It really it was. To say you're a power user of LinkedIn, I think would be a vast understatement. I really have not to date seen a profile that is more clear in terms of call to actions than yours. So <laughs> incredible job on that. I see you're very active. You post about a range of topics. So yeah, talk us through how, how does that look behind the scenes? Yeah, well, thank you very much for the kind words. Uh, I try to do a decent job at it and it's glad I'm glad it resonates. And there's a multitude of things around LinkedIn, a multitude of things. I think obviously, you know, you take care of your professional profile towards the outside world. I think most people, especially sort of in the tech industry, have realized that, right? So that's good. You get the basics um, done. Then I've really kick-started a bit stronger on LinkedIn when I left Salesforce and joined Clary because you really have to start putting on your business building uh, hat as you join a company as tiny as Clary, and especially kind of the startup within the startup in Europe as you know a handful of people at first. And I saw that as a tool to get the word out, hey, this startup, you should look at it either to join or to use the product or to learn about what we do and uh, you know get on that sort of um, category forming journey with us of, of revenue operations and as Clary does. And an additional thing that I've always done when I was at Salesforce, but then didn't find as much time because you know the startup is a bit more intense uh, than Salesforce. It's also more exciting in, in many ways, but it's a bit more intense. So I didn't have time to do reflections of my work as I do quite a lot. I did that at Salesforce about every week or two, I would go back and think, what did I learn? What did I, um, what, did, what, what would I do better? And I use LinkedIn as a tool for that as well. And it forces me, it's almost like, you know, social proof. And you kind of, you tell all your friends, you're going to, you know, run a marathon and then you kind of have to run a marathon because you told all your friends. So it's in a way almost for me as well, like I'm pushing out stuff on LinkedIn because I know, you know, other people will probably see it and I comment on it. And I'm like, look, there's my followers if you want. And I'm posting, posting stuff for them, but I'm posting my reflections on it. And if they can benefit from it, great. If not, at least I've reflected for myself on a, on a customer pitch or on, on something I learned about startups or building companies or leadership, whatever the case is. So I use it as a tool for that. And it's, it's resonated. I mean, there's some people that kind of reached out to me or, you know, that I ask for advice or mentorship. And that's been, that's been cool. I mean, I love doing that. I love sharing, especially kind of in the first few years as a professional, I think you learn a lot after university and it's been, been now really a great recruiting tool as well. So after the first year or so, it's, it's become a great recruiting tool because people, as soon as I post about a, uh, a job role we have, and there's a few people that will reach out and let's say all the team I have on, on my team is is either through LinkedIn outreach or or a referral from somebody that was on the team already. So it's worked great as a recruiting tool and built brand awareness. Um, so I think, yeah, it's kind of been a stair-step approach in getting more out of LinkedIn. And, and that's been quite great and very useful for us, I think. Yeah, I think it's just such an incredibly powerful and even though people recognize it, I think it's still overall underrated. Yeah, <laughs> the power absolutely, of the I agree. Especially in the yeah. tech sector, I think, you know, if you're in a different industry, it might not apply as much. Um, but I think if you're in technology in any way or form, you know, marketing, sales, pre-sales, SDR, yeah. you know, LinkedIn is the platform where you can, you know, really build your career um, and, you know, network very effectively. 
So when you put out those those insights, those reflections, do you sit down one weekend and kind of collect a lot of thoughts and then batch it and kind of post incrementally, or do you just kind of do it on the fly in the evenings when you have time? Or well, you've basically repeated my plan, which is perfect because that is my plan. Take some time, maybe on a on a Friday morning or on the weekend, write out you know five, ten amazing posts and then post them one by one. The reality is that never happens, and I still it's still my goal to get to that. But the reality is like it's 10, 11 in the morning. I have my second or third coffee. I'm like, ah, I need to get out a post. Okay, what did I learn last week? What did I do this morning? What do I have to do next week? That's kind of interesting. And it's almost in the moment thinking, um, which is good, right? You kind of force yourself a bit more during the week to kind of take some of these reflections on. What's interesting is some of the posts where I put in the least thought they resonate the best. Just the other day, I posted something on you know sales and qualification versus discovery. This was just a random note uh, that came up in a meeting. And I thought, well, it's really not the same thing. And we should really emphasize it a bit more. And it had, like I think, the most likes I've had in a while and most comments and people like, yeah, that's so interesting, Samir. I, I face that problem every day as well. So it's kind of funny as well from the other side. Like, it's, you know, think you put down a really nice post, you put a lot of thought in it and reflect a lot on it. Nobody cares. And then you put out a post that was just like a random, quick um, brain fart almost. And like people are like, oh my God, yes, this is great. Thank you for saying that. So it's kind of funny as well, kind of see how LinkedIn works and what people engage with. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a certain amount of repetitions to really, you just have to push a lot of stuff out to, yeah. to, to then get a better sense. Yeah. So let's say there's someone who wants to start getting more engaged on LinkedIn, posting more. You mentioned a couple of kind of prompts, like a recent customer interaction. Are there other things that, you know, if someone's just like kind of sitting in front of the screen, completely blank, what's good inspiration? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's many things, right? Don't, don't overthink it. That's one. Consistency, that's number two. So if you tell yourself you'll post twice a week, post twice a week. If you say you'll do it every day of the week, then do it every day of the week. If you say do it once a week, do it once a week. I think it's like any routine, it's, you know, the consistency matters the most. I think, you know, if you go to the gym, it's the same. If you go running, same. It's the same with LinkedIn posting and getting better at writing the posts. Don't get frustrated as well. Sort of that's the, the, that's the next thing, right? Don't get frustrated if people don't like it. Um, you know, not like they won't dislike it necessarily, but, you know, don't, you don't get many likes or anything like that. Don't worry about that. Don't get discouraged. Now, when you blank on the screen, you're looking at you know the cursor ticking. Just think about it, reflect again. What did you? What was one thing you learned? Uh, what was one thing you did wrong? And uh, you know what was a funny situation? And and imagine it from the seat, like as if you hadn't experienced that situation yet. And what you would love to have known beforehand, right? Um, I think that's always good. Sometimes almost stating the obvious with your own personal twist or experience is good as well. If you're, you know, I mean, people love, like, if you want to have people engage with your content is, you know, ask a question or put out the list, like, hey, here's three things, blah, 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 whatever, you come up with something, three things I didn't know about being a marketing person, for instance. People's stories are always good as well. I mean, people's stories, like, you know, did you have a success mode in your in your career or did you help somebody else be successful? I think that's always nice as well. I think people love love seeing that could be really a range of things. I'm not too consistent on my audience. You know, sometimes I post a bit more on what's pre-sale, sometimes more about startup building. I'm not writing for a specific audience, right? My, my That's not the goal necessarily of my posting. For me, it's really reflecting. Sometimes I learn something about pre-sales or being an SE. Sometimes I learn something about leading a team. 
sometimes I'll learn something about, you know, VCs and how they work. And then I'll post about it. And sometimes VCs or, you know, people in that world like to post and sometimes pre-sales people like to post. And I'm totally fine with that. For me, the purpose is not like nurture my audience. For me, the purpose is learn and reflect and share whatever I'm learning. And if somebody likes LinkedIn, great. If not, that's fine too. Yeah. So really that act of writing the post is a, is a thought exercise. Yeah. You get a lot of value out of it, even if exactly even if nobody looks at it yeah really that's exactly it yeah let me ask you a question that could actually be a, a post for you on linkedin okay what is some advice you would have for yourself at the start of your career like what's something you wish you knew right when you started so what i say so here's here's something i i'm happy i didn't listen to so people sometimes say you know oh don't worry you know just do your thing, work a bit, and things will work out in the end if you just do good work, career development or promotions or getting onto good projects and consulting, whatever the case is. I think that's not necessarily the full picture, right? You really have to own and drive your own career and be proactive about, hey, look, I want to become this. I want to move into pre-sales or I want to become a salesperson if I'm an SDR you know, just doing good work is the baseline of it, but it's such a busy world these days, just putting your head down and doing great work and hoping that a manager will miraculously discover discover you and, and you know, accelerate your career, I think doesn't necessarily happen too much. So I was always proactive, like, hey, look, I want to do this. I want to do this Salesforce thing. I want to become a pre-sales person because that sounds really interesting. I want to lead a team because um, that sounds exciting and I, I see how I could really love doing that being proactive about it and not not thinking not taking the advice of you know just do good work and things will happen because i think they don't necessarily just happen that's a very good take kind of like you are ultimately the ceo of your career right like yeah you're the one who has to lay out the vision and then drive the execution right the reason i asked that question is really because i'm not a fan of generic advice but i think actually the person we're best positioned to give advice to is ourselves and i think this is for me personally has been one of the the best things about growing older is that you actually get to know yourself better as a person. So that's where you can filter out the generic advice that doesn't make sense for you and take in what actually does. Absolutely. 100% agree with you. I mean, you're the CEO of your career and, and you manage it. I think it's, I think it's really hard for people just starting out their careers, to be honest. I mean, especially I'm kind of in, in London now a bit more last few years it's such a competitive environment for these graduates, even though they're from top universities, speaking speak, you know, 12 languages and whatnot, they're still so stressed. I was never so stressed because I was from this tiny village in Switzerland, Accenture just was like a thing I wanted to do and it sounded interesting. So I think um, you gain a lot of confidence in the first few years of your career. And I think that's really important. And I think in the, in the first few years, just you know, think about it thoughtfully, what you want to do, experiment a bit around and, and make sure you're learning really with every month in the, in the first few years of your career and reflect like, hey, what could be an option? Talk to as many people as you can, very actively network, you know, internally in the firm you're at or, or LinkedIn, because that's what I still do today. I, I love talking to people, you know, who are in different fields than I am, just to learn what they do, but also to kind of think, oh, could this be something I want to do one day? And sometimes I talk to a person, I think, no, never. And sometimes I think, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. Oh, that's, I didn't know that job even existed. And, and there's many jobs even today that I think, I didn't know there was a job. That's, that's pretty interesting. I didn't know that exists. And I think early on in your career, there's countless jobs you don't know even exist. You just want to become an analyst or consultant or trainee or whatever it is. And then, you know, it's all about opening up the aperture and learning as much as you can and re like educating yourself and nurturing that 
kind of learning that you have in your career. Absolutely. Very wise words. Samir, thank you so much for joining. It's been, yeah, my it's pleasure. been a pleasure. Uh, I'll include a link to your LinkedIn profile. Everyone, I urge you to check it out. It's very well done. Also a link to Union for Digital or what is formerly known as Union for Digital, maybe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And feel free to do that. Anybody who's listening, feel free to connect. Happy to you know, talk or, or share anything you want to. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. As always, thank you very much for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate a rating and review in your podcast app. Thank you and see you next time.